The guy who actually is an outsider, who doesn't have that gilded path to the top, has to take slightly bigger risks in order to get his, get himself above the parapet. Which might be an argument for um, actually eccentric, diverse hiring, you know, in terms of background, ethnic minority, cognitive style, everything else. That, you know, different people have different attitudes to risk. And there's an argument that if you've got nothing to lose, you can take risks. Or if you're very, very rich, you can take risks because you can afford to lose. Turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn the f- this episode is sponsored by Rebe, the marketing analytics platform that gives you answers instead of more data. If you're looking at boosting conversions and understanding where you're going wrong, then you have to check out a Rebe. No more wasting time on Google Analytics by looking through irrelevant data. Now you can get to the crux of your tracking and measuring efforts in just a few simple clicks. So how does it work? After you connect a Rebe to your or your client's site, everything is tracked and analyzed automatically. That means whenever you launch a new campaign, landing page, promotion, or piece of content, you don't need to worry about those annoying tracking codes. You'll immediately have all the data you need in a user-friendly dashboard. Also, Arebi lets you create conversion funnels in just a few seconds. And you get to see how your visitors behave through these flows on your site. They also have cool integrations with platforms like Facebook, HubSpot, MailChimp. So make sure you check them out. They have a seven-day free trial. And the Marketing Millennials listeners get 20% off all plans with the promo code TMM20. That's T as in the, M as in marketing, M as in millennials, 20. Or you can go to aribi.io backslash TMM. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O backslash TMM. Or use a link in the show notes below to claim this amazing discount. Hey, Rory, welcome to the podcast. Ah, huge pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, this is... Where are you, actually? I always ask by asking that question. In the same way that we do with mobile phones, that you have to, in a video call, you have to know where the other person is for some strange reason, even though it's irrelevant. Yeah, I'm actually in Los Angeles, uh, on the other side of the... Basically, like, 11 hours different. No, not eight hours difference. Time, yeah, so. I'm, in, I'm in Deal, which is on the kind of coast, the east coast of Kent, about as far southeast as you can go in, in the UK, just near the seaside. You're obviously in downtown Los Angeles, judging by the high altitude view. Uh, no, this is a fake background. I love my oh. fake backgrounds. Yeah. Ah, OK. Right. I was, I was wondering where. Yeah, fair enough. No, absolutely fine. It's yeah. very good fake, actually. I wouldn't have known. <laughs> yeah. I want to get into talking about what you've been up to lately because and maybe just a quick background on who you are and what you're known for and all that good stuff i've worked in advertising for uh, and marketing and direct marketing for about 30 crikey 33 years uh, as of this year it's always struck me that what you variously learn in the different branches of marketing and advertising 
in fact, has a wider application than simply to communications. And I think the mistake that ad industry organizations have always made is they've always chased simply the communications budgets. And actually, there is an application for creativity in solving a whole host of business problems. You could call it design thinking, and I accept the fact that there are other practitioners of design thinking who aren't conventionally described as ad agencies. But the application for this kind of thought is now much, much broader than ever. And it's particularly interesting because even when uh, design-led, creativity-led, or behaviorally or psychologically-led solutions are manifestly cheaper and superior to the kind of material alternative, you always encounter resistance as though somehow it's cheating. And it fascinates me. The way I described it, I think, in my book is that when we design furniture, okay, we design it for the evolved human body. We design steering wheels to fit into our hands. Now, we didn't evolve hands to steer cars. We evolved them to cling on to branches or stones or rocks or eggs or whatever it was they were designed to grasp, teleologically speaking. But we, we designed furniture to fit with our buttocks and we designed steering wheels to fit with our hands and door handles to be reasonably at elbow height. And yet when it comes to designing things to fit with the evolved shape of the human brain, we kind of back away and we resort to creating this putatively uniform, logical, rational, representative entity to stand in for real-world humans for the purposes of solving such problems. And, you know, in economics, the characters jokingly called homo economicus. My colleague and I, Pete Dyson, have just written a book where we talk about homo transporticus, you know, the imagined passenger for all, you know, mass transit systems is this incredibly rational entity preoccupied with time saving above all else. I think the thing that worries me about this is it then becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because you design things for this imaginary person, which forces people to behave more and more like this imaginary person, even, to be honest, against their own interests. And then, of course, the behavior is used as evidence that we were right all along. So an example of this is it's very difficult to choose flights except on time and price. SatNav makes an assumption about the fact that we are in a massive hurry and that we're only really interested in time saving. Okay, and it's, it's actually a much more complex decision than that. The assumptions of algorithm designers is to, it, uh, concerning how we should choose eventually start distorting how we do choose to a point where I think we're often making suboptimal choices. Another example I give of that is property websites, where you search by location first, then kind of buy or rent, then surface area. Okay. Now, it's not a totally illogical way to choose, but it makes absolutely no consideration of things like architectural quality, for example, you know, the elegance of the building. And the order in which we then are forced to relay our preferences distorts the choices we make to an extent where there could be an absolutely perfect and gorgeous property 500 yards outside our search radius, which we never even get to see. And so the whole business of how we think people should choose 
is really doubly important because if we get it wrong, we don't notice because we design choices around those assumptions. And then to some extent, the assumptions become self-validating. I think that makes sense, does it? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think especially marketers, like every marketer, a lot of marketing orgs I've been to is all like, I'm going to make this advertisement based on the assumption that someone wants a product for this reason. And instead, it's instead like you you go figure out that the actual thing that they're paying they're trying to solve is totally different. Like it could be something way, way out of the, the scope of what the ad is trying to portray. We, in fairness, we don't make this mistake in everything. We don't assume that food is all about the efficient delivery of calories. But we do assume that, uh, you know, that transportation is about minimizing time spent in transit, for example. Now, often that's true. There's a correlation there in the sense that, you know, a journey that takes three hours longer than you expected is probably going to be a horrible journey. But it isn't necessarily true that a journey on a fast train is going to be more enjoyable than a journey on a slow train. If overnight travel, for example, you want the train to go slowly so people get a decent night's sleep. Then you might argue if the train service is particularly frequent, punctuality becomes less important because obviously, you know, people at that point aren't actually aiming to catch a specific train. So it's regularity, not punctuality, which in fact counts. And so understanding that the standard metrics we tend to use, they have a certain value uh, in, in removing the worst of an experience, perhaps. But there's also a law of diminishing returns. I mean, I think with speed of travel, you come up against the laws of physics, apart from anything else. You know, it's simply dangerous and uneconomical to move things through air uh, you know, above a certain speed, you know, 300 miles an hour. Now, by the way, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not using this as a, a, as a total anti-train argument by any means. I think the United States is grossly lacking high-speed rail, uh, in fact. Um, I, I sort of understand the historical reasons why that's so. But connecting the Bay Area with San Francisco, you know, with, with, with Los Angeles would seem a, a fairly blindingly obvious application for rail, I have to say. I agree, too. Because flights, especially in the two airports, are always either delayed. You can't land in the Bay Area a lot of the times because fog. So I, I know of, that from experience. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all those things. And it, it's kind of interesting going back to what you said about like overnight trains and stuff like that, but also like GPSs, right? Um, I saw someone post this other day. If I'm willing to go, I'm willing to go 30 minutes longer on a car ride if I get the scenic view home instead of going the trafficy way home and saving 30 minutes. So the, I mean, there are four. I can think of four good reasons why you might choose a slower route to a destination. One of them is lower variance. You have a train to catch. You have a meeting to attend. Okay, you go the slower route. It's going to be somewhere between 40 and 50 minutes. The faster route on the interstate. In perfect light traffic, it's going to be 25 minutes. But if a semi jackknifes, you're stuck there all afternoon. And actually, if you want to make your meeting or at least not be embarrassingly late for your meeting, you might trade off low variance for high speed. Then another one would be scenery. A third one would be a preference for keeping moving over being static. So quite a few people make that trade off. They'd rather 
They'd rather 40 minutes spent rolling along at 15 miles an hour than a shorter period where you're stationary infuriatingly, you know, for a, a you know 10 or 15 minutes of the journey. And then, of course, there's the ability to combine other things on route. Those are just four examples, you know. Uh, you know, in other words, by taking the longer route, I can actually kill two birds with one stone. Yep. I mean, those are all... They're all perfectly valid reasons, and SatNav tends to, you know, fail. It, it doesn't account for any of those. Yep. You know, it doesn't say, do you want the low-variance route? Do you want the scenic route? Do you want the constant, constantly rolling route? But, you know, we just find being static massively... I mean, it creates, I, I suspect it's related to kind of claustrophobia, but being stationary in traffic is an order of magnitude worse than being in slow traffic. Particularly, actually, funnily enough, one of the things I've noticed, I've just bought an electric car, and slow with adaptive cruise control, slow traffic's actually pretty chill. You know, you just effectively set your distance between you and the car in front. You outsource your, your driving to the, the guy in front. It's, it's, it's not nearly as as it was whereas being stationary is just kind of annoying yep see there's all those considerations that aren't made in the map like are you driving a tesla versus driving yeah. a a an old jeep let's say that doesn't have any comfortability or something like that i have a question what do you think how could marketers take into account more of these basically decisions that aren't the logical choice like when they're doing marketing campaigns and building products? It's always difficult because there's this asymmetry, which I always remark upon, which is that creative or imaginative or counterintuitive solutions always have to be presented to rational people for approval, but it never happens the other way around. If you come up with a rational answer to a question, you never say, well, before we enact this, let's just go and share it with a bunch of comedians or wacky people or creative people or designers to see if they've got a second opinion. Okay, You're just allowed to plow ahead because what you're proposing is eminently rational. But just because something's rational, just because something makes sense, doesn't mean it's, it's necessarily optimal. It's simply the answer to the best question you've asked so far. But if someone comes along with a better question, there's a better answer. You know, I would argue that Uber, Uber owes part of its success to the fact that it didn't ask the question only, how do we get cabs to people very, very quickly? And that would have been a kind of predictive algorithm and simply having more cars. Okay? It also instigated the map which answered a more interesting question, which is how can we make waiting for a cab feel comparatively less frustrating? You know, there are times when actually I regret ordering a cab because it tell, it's now going to arrive too early. I wanted the cab to arrive in 15, 20 minutes and the damn thing's going to arrive in three. And I was kind of enjoying the party, but I wanted to catch a train. And Uber, by giving you a sense of control and a sense of kind of certainty over the arrival time of the car, completely transforms both the experience of waiting and what you can do with that time. You know, you can make a cup of tea if you know the cab is arriving in 15 minutes, whereas if you don't know if it's going to arrive in three minutes or 12, you can't really do anything. That's simply an answer to a better question. And this is where rational people, I think, often go wrong. They ask a banal question, answer it, typically a question which is highly suited to a rational, optimal answer. They optimize for that question 
and then pat themselves on the back and walk away, knowing that they're free of any risk of blame or responsibility because they have acted rationally. But of course, it's it's not a crazy thing for people to do if you're a bit of a careerist. It's much, much easier to get fired for being irrational than it is for being unimaginative. And so we always face this problem of the asymmetry where, you know, wacky people, I think rightly, by the way, have to present their thinking to more rational people for a cost-benefit analysis, a feasibility study, that kind of stuff. But you never get the rational people doing it the other way around, do you? I wonder if a comedian has a better take on this. You know, <laughs> One thing that I think you, you've said before, which I think is really interesting, is the way marketers are compensated, aren't aligned with making bigger risks like stock traders are compensated for taking this. Well, no, I, I mean, that's true of anybody in a corporate or institutional setting has much more downside risk than they have upside opportunity, really. Okay. And there's a Hollywood story, isn't there? A little like trading places, if you like, where the outsider makes it into an organization. Now, if you're an outsider in an organization, arguably, your risk profile is slightly different because you have a disproportionate incentive to make a name for yourself in a way that the Princeton graduate probably doesn't. You know, the Princeton graduate is, I've got a job at this white shoe law firm. Don't fuck it up. Okay. Now, the guy who, I, I suppose that's what Suits is about in part. Okay. The guy who actually is an outsider who doesn't have that gilded path to the top has to take slightly bigger risks in order to get, his, get himself above the parapet which might be an argument for um, actually eccentric, diverse hiring, you know, in terms of background, ethnic minority, cognitive style, everything else. That, you know, different people have different attitudes to risk. And there's an argument that if you've got nothing to lose, you can take risks. Or if you're very, very rich, you can take risks because you can afford to lose. You know, and that people in the middle tend to become highly conformist. And I think there's something interesting there, because if you think about it, I think there was a wonderful way in which Amos Tversky, in a conversation with someone else, partly explained loss aversion in this way. He said, if you think about it, we're here. I think they're at Stanford at the time. You know, I can't think of that many things we can do now that would like make that could make our lives inordinately better. But I can think of a thousand things we could do now, you know, having an affair with the dean's wife, you know, stealing a mug. OK, there are a million things you could do that would make your life inordinately worse. You know, just using, the, you know, you know, misgendering someone. I mean, life is actually quite a minefield. So when you look at it and particularly corporate life now, you're right. Someone in a kind of trading or investment community, there's a reasonable symmetry between their upside opportunity and their downside risk. If you're on the corporate treadmill, it's very, very easy and arguably it's even sensible to adopt a whatever you do, don't mess up mentality. I like the how you stated about someone who is trying to fight their way. And even you see this in sports a lot too. the people, mm. the first round, the person who gets drafted higher or comes into sports they have more of the thing like I have all this pressure not to mess up where the fifth round or like the later round picks who come in don't have anything there. All they have to prove is like, I got to take a bunch of risks and do a bunch of things and work harder to, to prove myself in this community. 
and they can do that. Yeah, but by the way, by the way, we need both. Uh, one of the things I'm not suggesting is there are very large areas of corporate activity where the risk-averse approach is highly appropriate. I mean, you know, I don't know if you put me in charge of P and G's Tide brand, okay, which is something of an outlier. But I think I'm fair in saying that Tide has something like 75, 80 percent of the U.S. detergents market for washing machines. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about sure. right. Doesn't yeah. yeah. Uh, in Colgate would be similar in the toothpaste field, okay? A very large part of my day would, I think, rightly be spent in going, what the hell can go wrong? You know, let's not mess up here because, you know, the potential for you know, market gain is, is, is finite, whereas the potential for catastrophe is enormous. But the digital world has brought us, I think, opportunities for experimentation where the downside risk is finite and containable. You know, I, mean, I do this in direct marketing. You know, you would test a new letter and you would typically, you would send out 350,000 control letters. This is direct mail in the old days and 50,000 of a new test, you know, hoping to get a reasonable level of statistical validity. You, you, would, you do it that way around. OK, you know, you'd spend more on exploit than you did on explore. That's that's the right ratio. Exploit what you know, because a company that doesn't exploit what it knows is just random and ridiculous. But equally, particularly in a changing environment like a post-COVID world, the ratio of explore to exploit, which will always be more exploit than explore, and in certain areas like airline safety, it should be 99% exploit. You know, we have attained this extraordinary thing over time through an evolutionary process of information sharing, cultural work, etc. Don't mess with too much unless you're really confident that it is better and only experiment in a very finite and containable way. But equally, in things like marketing, uh, which is generally, you know, a small, you know, one of the few parts of business that's mostly preoccupied with the future, if you like, marketing and, and R&D should be given permission to be more experimental and you shouldn't demand of them that everything they do makes sense in advance that's probably fair in a field like logistics where the quality of reasoning is roughly related to the quality of the decision but in, in a much more random and experimental world involving a huge amount of complexity and uncertainty it isn't fair to say that the quality of reasoning is a good proxy for the quality of the decision in fact yeah, that's an interesting point. I also want to go into your thoughts on like how the, the world has got very noisy with all, everything going on in the digital world and how humans, how marketing could stand out in a world that's getting incredibly noisier with notifications, emails flying everywhere, Facebook ads coming into your feed. Like how do, should marketers think about standing out in a noisy world. Well, one interesting thing, of course, is that if you're highly rational, generally rationality takes you to the same place as everybody else because you're drawing on the same information as everybody else, drawing the same conclusions, and therefore competition in a market becomes more and more alike, which then typically becomes a race to the bottom on price or a race to the top on some silly measure. Well, you know... Actually, markets overall, the economy profits from diversity. You know, the fact that actually, okay, we have this guy who's competing on this dimension. You know, I, I mean, okay, a Ferrari does not attempt to compete with Rolls-Royce on comfort, and it doesn't attempt to compete with Toyota on reliability, and it doesn't attempt to compete with, you know, Skoda on value, for example. 
Okay. And so, interestingly, I think the fact that people make messy decisions, noisy decisions as consumers, overall contributes to market health. If we have consumers making very uniform decisions, all using the same metrics and the same decision-making tools, then actually it will create market distortion. The fact that people choose things in different ways means ultimately that markets can act as information aggregators where the noise cancels out and you're left with signal. I'll give you an example of this. Okay, If everybody in America... I always joke about this. I'm not going to make this joke, but I always joke that Americans partly choose cars on the number of cup holders. Now, this is not true, okay? But if everybody chose cars on fuel economy first, you know, acceleration second, comfort third, da da da, what you'd end up with is cars that were highly economical, but extremely ugly, not very comfortable, et cetera. The fact that lots of people with different preferences all effectively exercise a kind of vote through buyer market power as consumers, essentially means that we get cars that are pretty good across the board. They don't prioritize one particular dimension at the expense of others. Now, you know, there are market differences there quite reasonably because there are more straight lines in the United States and there are more curvy roads in Europe. You know, the Euro- you know Americans have, spe- have focused on muscle cars, which a category I love, actually, by the way. A lot of Europeans disparage them, but I think they're rather fantastic. Americans have placed more emphasis on, you know, brute force acceleration, and Europeans are a bit more obsessed with the Nürburgring and cornering, okay? And so, you know, but nonetheless, what I'm saying is that whenever a metric becomes over-dominant, there's a problem, in fact. Because you get a problem of uniformity, you might get a problem of fragilization, and you also you also get a problem that people can game the system. That you know, fundamentally, you know, one of the great problems with with metrics is people game the system. In the UK, for reasons I never understand, we don't buy houses on and France is the same, interestingly. In Germany and the United States, you buy property by square feet, or in Germany, square meters. Okay. In France and the UK, for reasons I don't quite understand, we list property by number of bedrooms. In France, is in T3, T4, T2. I have no idea what the T stands for, by the way, but I think it refers to the number of bedrooms. No idea what it stands for. In Britain, we say three-bedroom flat, two-bedroom flat. Now, to some extent, that gets gained because one of the problems with British flats is they have too few toilets, Okay. They generally might have one toilet upstairs, not one downstairs. And some of the other rooms are far too small, like the main living room, simply because if you, if you make the living room larger, it doesn't actually turn a two-bedroom flat into a three-bedroom flat. So what you do is you add on a stupid third bedroom. It may not actually add to the enjoyment of the occupants, but it, it, it enables you to charge a larger price. That's a classic example where an over-dominant metric becomes game. That's super interesting, and also like, it's totally, it's totally stupid. This, by the way, it's driven me nuts for ages. You know, because generally, too few bathrooms. You know, meagerly small kitchens in some cases, or you know, now, I mean, one thing a room, one thing I think any apartment does benefit from, to be honest, is how big the bedroom is is not that big a concern because you're asleep in the damn thing. Whereas having one really big communal space is a huge plus. And now, what tends to happen in the UK is the opposite. You get, you know, you get a number of small bedrooms, fair enough, but it comes at the expense of toilets or living space or kitchen space, uh, or conceivably, you know, garden or outdoor space like balconies, in a way that isn't really helpful. 
What's pretty interesting about that is I think with COVID, especially in the United States with the remote work, that might have switched a little bit because if you have a three-bedroom apartment and you have three roommates, you can't all work in the living space. So your bedroom becomes your work space. So having a bigger bedroom is actually more... Really, um, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, LA is famous for the master bedroom being huge, isn't it? I, I once spent some time, for reasons I won't go into, with, with actually with my sister-in-law, looking at LA property, kind of around, I suppose it was around kind of the um, Mulholland Drive area. I think it was... Um, um, but what was interesting was that the master bedroom seemed, for whatever reason, to be absolutely enormous. And actually, you're right that that I suppose what it is, is that's the parents only private space. So it's becoming if you have kids, you know, those rooms you can escape to become disproportionately important. I think that's absolutely true. I thought COVID was fascinating in the extent to which video conferencing, it turns out, was a bit of and I only discovered this phrase yesterday, Columbus's egg. And apparently Columbus's egg, it comes from a story. There are things which I think are only obvious in retrospect. In other words, you can't reason your way to them. But once you've actually made the discovery, it seems self-evident. Okay. The moment we forget this, you actually, you're too young to realize this, in fact. But you needed to market mobile phones. I don't, I don't mean you had to market a Nokia or a Samsung or an iPhone 13. You had to actually persuade people that it was worth getting a mobile phone. Now, that seems absolutely bizarre now, but trust me, in the mid to late 90s, there were loads of people saying, well, why would I want to make a phone call standing on the street? I mean, literally, you know, I've got pay phones. What do I need a mobile phone for? Once you have a mobile phone, the need for it becomes self-evident. Also true of Japanese toilets, dishwashers. There are various products which actually it's impossible to actually explain them in advance. You have to experience them. Then the product then reframes your own expectations and assumptions of what's normal and desirable, and therefore you're then converted. I mean, in the UK, we're very late to multi-channel TV. We thought, in my childhood, we thought Americans were ridiculous for having 20 TV channels. We had three, and that was quite enough for anybody. Okay, Once you get 20 channels, no one goes back to three, but it still requires persuasion. And the Columbus's egg is caused by the fact that Columbus got pissed off because people said, well, it was obvious someone was going to find you know, a uh, you know, passage to, I think they, Columbus thought he discovered the East Indies, didn't he, in fact? Mm-hmm. But people said it was obvious someone's going to discover your pa- package. You know, you just got lucky. And it comes from the fact that Columbus then challenges everybody to balance an egg on its end. And none of them can do it. And then Columbus takes an egg, gives it a dent, bangs it on the table, flattens the end of the egg, and it stands up. And he says, it's obvious after you've done it, but none of you did it. And I think... I think there's a very interesting thing there with Columbus's egg, which is that video conferencing, we sort of knew in theory that it, it offered desirable benefits, but we didn't really believe in them until COVID forced us to experience it. You know, it was a kind of collective experiment in solving a coordination problem. You know, I don't think people who've worked flexibly and have done a call like I'm doing with you now over Zoom, okay, I don't think people like me will fly to Frankfurt for the day ever again. And we had to do it because it was the norm. In in 2019, as I said, you had a two-hour meeting in Frankfurt. Flying there was the Coca-Cola, and suggesting a video call was Dr. Pepper. 
you know, you're an outlier, you're a weirdo. You know, if the video call went wrong, your ass was on the line. Suddenly what changed is we did this brief experiment and brief in the, you know, in the scheme of things of, you know, a year and a half where everybody tried working remotely because they had to. Now, what will happen is we won't revert to the status quo ante because we, in Columbus's end terms, we've discovered things which now seem self-evident, but they weren't in 2019. I mean, you know, it's now highly visible that commuting soaks up a lot of time which people could would prefer to spend productively. It's now self-evident that people value a degree of autonomy over where they are and where they spend their time and the hours they work, by the way. I mean, knowledge work, if you think about it, was... Uh, you know, one advantage, I'm not suggesting that blue-collar employment is is preferable to white-collar employment. White-collar employment is pretty cushy in many respects. But if you're a single mum, or if you're disabled, or if you're a carer, or you have some other obligation, or you can't afford to live in a big city, white-collar employment is very, very inflexible about the terms of employment. You turn up at nine o'clock in the morning, you turn up typically in a place in the middle of very expensive real estate, and at five o'clock, you're free to go home. Don't think of working shifts. Don't think of working flexibly. Don't think of working weekends. Don't think you can take an afternoon off because your aging parent is ill, because you can't. And, you know, okay, white collar employment, as I said, is relatively cushy. I don't, you know, very few people get killed doing it. It's not dangerous. It's not physically exerting. You do lose a hell of a lot of daylight. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, the one thing, you know, I mean, you know, if I, I think if I were a truck driver, I would work night shifts. You know, I, you know, I tend to, you know, if I were in any kind of blue collar employment, I tend to work weird hours because the, you know, being free and having leisure time when everybody else is at work is particularly valuable and enjoyable. But again, it's something you only discover when you've done it. That's super interesting. I think also going back to like the mobile phones because I worked, I entered at Qualcomm and they bet on. 3G, that data was going to be a thing. And everybody thought the mobile phone was just going to be used for texting and emailing. And out comes the iPhone and data becomes everything. And then now it's like, how fast could your phone go? Where before it was just like, I just use my mobile phone to text, call, and email people. Um, Yeah, that's very, very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I must admit, okay, so this is an example of something rather bizarre. I was friendly with a guy at Nokia when Nokia was working in the late, I suppose it was the late 2010, 20, the late ooze, actually, with TV on your phone. And I never said it to my friend who, was, uh, who worked for Nokia. And you couldn't, you couldn't stream the data then because it was 2G, but you could have some system with local masks, masks and whatever. And I, I must admit, I remember thinking, you know, okay, you're, you're kind of getting slightly wacky here. Do we really need TV on the phone? You know, the idea of watching a film on a screen that was tiny seemed faintly absurd to me. And so this is, I mean, you're absolutely right. That I mean, one of the things is that we don't know what people want. We don't know what behaviours are sticky and what behaviours aren't sticky. The other interesting thing is that people don't know what they want either. And Bill Gates had this wonderful phrase, which is people... The trouble, he, he said, the great problem we have now is people don't know how to want the things we can offer them. Which sounds like a silly kind of comment, but there's a lot of truth in that. that there's this marketing hurdle you have to clear because our behavior is probably overwhelmingly driven by two things, I would say, social copying and habit. And by default, we tend to do what everybody else does 
and, and, and in many cases, we're actually kind of compelled to do what other people do. I mean, you can't be the only person in a group of 10 friends who doesn't have a mobile phone, okay? Even if you'd rather not have a mobile phone because you'd simply miss out too much, okay? So, so social pressure, social conformity, and social copying is one of the kind of big gravitational large forces of behavior, and the other one's habit. And what that means is that changing the behavior of the first people is disproportionately difficult. I mean, you might argue I could make a case, even though the people doing these things are rich, I could make a case for tax breaks for electric cars on that basis, which is you're asking someone to take a social risk. You're asking someone to break with everything they know about what an automobile is, okay? Some inducement to get them to take the first step. Once it reaches critical mass, by the way, I, I, do you have an electric car? Do you know you, you obviously have a car because you live in Los Angeles? But um, but do you, have you gone electric yet or not? No, because I don't. Right now, I don't drive that much because of working at home. So for me, like the choice of getting a yeah. car, the choice to getting a car. Back in if if I was still commuting, I would get an electric car because it's just easier, more what you just said before, com yeah. comfortable, easier more enjoyable but now there's no commute like a car is just somewhere to get somewhere now For, to me it's not somewhere something that i need to be in there I'll, I'll, I'll give you a love i'll give you a lovely example of how very intelligent people I, i've got a friend who's got a letter from a very bright guy, guy i'll name him actually guy kawasaki and he's proposing before uber a kind of car service and he literally gets the answer this is bear in mind pre-Uber. I don't know the date. I think, it, again, it's the early teens, late ooze. Okay, pre-Uber era. The answer is, interesting idea, but Americans don't really take cabs much, maybe in New York, is the answer. Now, I imagine Uber in LA is pretty massive now, is it? But, you know, um, it's huge, yeah. Absolutely huge. Now, Funnily enough, L.A. didn't have that much of a cab culture, did it, 20 years ago? It was much more a drive-yourself culture. So drive-yourself or get someone to pick you up culture. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, very, it was very interesting how, you know, that certain products basically change the rules about what people want. And therefore, demanding that you can only experiment with R&D around products that people already say they want is fundamentally a mistake because the process of innovation is kind of recursive. It's a little like Winston Churchill's point, which is we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. Then, you know, having a mobile phone, I mean, having a car in the first place, it, it's very easy to be anti-car if you've never owned a car. The problem is when you own a car, it changes your expectations of autonomy to an extent where non-car forms of transport suddenly feel worse. The electric car, by the way, I mean, the interesting thing, by the way, with the electric car, fairly confident prediction. Once three of your close friends have electric cars, you'll find it comparatively easy to buy one. Okay? Once you're the fourth person among your group of friends, solar panels are apparently the same. You're much more likely to get solar panels if a neighbor or several people in your street already have them. And so there's this human instinct to effectively do what everybody else does, don't do anything weird which requires a degree of kind of effort to overcome. I mean, I, I wouldn't have gotten, I'll tell you this very, very simply, I wouldn't have bought an electric car at all if my brother hadn't bought one first. 
Now, the big advantage there is my brother is an astrophysicist, and he, you know, he was previously a physicist and a mathematician. He understands all this Maxwell's equation shit. You know, he can tell me, okay, okay, here's the difference between a seven kilowatt charger, a fifty, you know, and he actually was able to overcome my various fears with a degree of reassurance given his scientific background that basically meant, okay, I'm going to take the plunge. If I hadn't had him to chat with, I would have gone petrol. And so this is, if you like, this is what's called a Bass diffusion curve. You know, technologies which basically take a sigmoid path, early adopters, weirdos, eccentrics, you know, and some of those things remain stuck there forever. CB radio, you know, never really made it mainstream. I don't know if you remember that trucker radio, you know. You know, there were there were people who thought it would become mainstream that cars would routinely just have CB radio. Never happened. Okay. Then there are things like the mobile phone, where the sigmoid curve goes all the way up to sort of ninety-eight percent. Of course, mobile phone ownership is more than a hundred percent. There are more mobile phones in many countries than there are people. But then it does plateau, and then you're in the replacement, not the market growth phase. But I mean, understanding that curve is really important, I think, because one of the mistakes I think marketers make. If you're obsessed with financial return on ROMI, return on marketing investment, okay, as a short-term measure, you'll find it very easy to advertise when the market's growing fast, but you'll find it very difficult to justify advertising expenditure when the market's in an early phase. But it might be in that early phase when the advertising is, in fact, most effective because it's creating normal – it isn't necessarily creating immediate sales – but it's creating normalization around the product. Yep. I mean, even what you just said about, I think going back to the point of how you made the decision to get an electric car, like a marketer who marketers will can attribute that to something will probably be like, oh, yeah. he probably saw an advertisement of that car. But really the the thing that made you make a plunge was your brother talking to you. Getting do, do, do you know my suggestion, by the way, which I suggested to a South African electric car brand? I said, when someone buys one of your cars, give them the right to nominate two people they know for a four-day test drive. Because selling to the friend of someone who owns an electric car, I think, I mean, I think you, the guy you need for this is people like Nicholas Christakis, who really understand network effects. But generally, I think what you saw with mobile phone penetration is that it was a net, it was a net, kind of network spread. I don't know what kind of network precisely, but eventually you reached a point where enough of your friends had a mobile phone where it actually became a, a decision not to have one. You know, I mean. Uh, in the early days of mobile phones, you had to, it was Dr. Pepper, you had to explain why you weren't drinking Coke, why you had a mobile phone. And then you hit this tipping point where you actually have to justify not having one. And there are products, by the way, I, I've been evangelizing the air fryer. Have you got one, by the way? Okay. Yeah, they're, they're so amazing. Yeah, and I always said, look, here is a product that is simply waiting for its tipping point. And I kept arguing to Philips, why don't you just advertise this thing? Because I said, look, we may get the timing wrong. Okay, let's be honest. But the advertising is likely to accelerate the speed at which this tipping point emerges. Why don't you advertise? And they could never make the business case because it was kind of too early. And now they probably have to advertise air fryers like crazy because there are loads of competitors and imitators in the market. But it's a classic product where once it's, it's Columbus's egg product. 
you know, multi-channel TV, the mobile phone. I think the electric car is actually at Columbus. I can't envisage myself. Very interestingly, okay, the plan was me get electric car, replace wife's car with petrol car so that we have one gas, not gasoline car. We have one gasoline car for longer journeys to have an emergency. Once I got the electric car, my wife basically is now getting an electric mini. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, to be honest, if I hadn't had the electric car first, I would have stuck, you know, but the electric car basically changed my idea of what was desirable about a car. And so driving around in a car that's belching fumes and which makes a noise when you're stationary now just feels annoying. Okay. Also a point you made, which is how the world's a little bit shifting with social media is a lot of people are building up that community network before they even build a product because then they could figure yeah. out what what they could sell to it with the all the influencers and stuff you see a lot of like like kim kardashian building brand like a, a skims for herself because and people are buying it because she's the influencer so a lot of people are building the network before they even build the product kind of like the air the air fryer was built before the, there was like a community around the air fryer. You don't have kids, do you? But this is the toughest question. We always regard, when our kids say, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be famous. Okay. You go, no, no, no. It doesn't work like that. You work very, very hard, and then you make money, and eventually you end up famous. And the idea is get rich, then famous. Okay? From a probabilistic standpoint, I'm not sure my kids aren't right. Because if you're famous, the number of opportunities that come your way is just exponentially higher than if you're obscure. Okay, you know, let, okay. Let's think of William Shatner, disproportionately famous guy. All right, he's famous for being Kirk. He occasionally makes very weird songs. He's doing strange things. Priceline came along, and you know, because he was famous, he got access to an opportunity. I think he took his payment in Priceline stock, not in not in cash. Okay, and Shatner is now a significantly wealthy guy on the back of his fame. Now, that wasn't something you could anticipate 20 years ago. No one was saying to William Shatner, you don't want to get into acting. Don't want to go into acting. Don't don't make the Star Trek thing. Okay, what you need to be doing is focusing on online online travel agencies. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) but at the time, no one knew they existed. And so the extent to which with an uncertain future, Fame and brand fame allows you to increase. I'm talking a bit like the scene talent here. He's a friend of mine, so forgive me for plagiarizing, okay? But in a highly fat-tailed future, uh, fame allows you to increase your surface area exposure to unexpected upside opportunity, okay? You don't know what that opportunity is in advance, but the point is that what you want to do is you want an opportunity to become an option. And fame allows opportunities to become options because if you're brought an opportunity because you're famous and you're given more opportunities and you can pick and choose, then generally you will do a lot better. And Dr. Dre probably made more money out of headphones than he ever did out of music. Is that fair? Yep, exactly. That's what that that's how you, that with social yeah. media and personal brands, like if you a lot of people will say, Oh, back in the day would be like, oh, build the product, then marketed but now like someone who has a personal brand or an influence could build multiple products because it's not attached to the product anymore it's attached to the whole bigger brand of that person so that's why i think it's so interesting now that 
so a lot of if you even see the most successful i've seen some influencers outsell brands that have been around for five years off of one set like off of a year of selling because their audience is so huge and their brand is so strong actually of course i mean the most extraordinary case is tesla which famously does not advertise and that's a, to be honest tesla would make more money if it did advertise okay I would argue that very, very strongly. Tesla would be a more profitable, successful company if it actually advertised. I'll say that absolutely. Okay. It's a little bit of a geek point of pride that you don't, because it's the it's the maintaining the pretense that your product is so great that it sells itself. But one one thing is that Elon Musk does a hell of a lot of self-advertisement. If you go onto YouTube, the noise around Tesla. Okay, every god, I'm I'm on a lot of electric car groups in Tesla, and every flaming day there's a you know Elon has basically invented a cure for you know Elon discovers the secret of immortality. E- Egon help e- so Elon make, makes you you know more attractive to the. I mean the the, the messianic qualities that are actually attributed to uh, Elon Musk are spectacular. I mean you know Jesus had St Paul as his marketing guy, but he didn't even come close to Elon. Okay. And so the amount of noise around that brand is absolutely extraordinary. In fact, once you get vaguely interested in the electric car brand world, then 70% of the noise you'll be exposed to online will be Tesla-related. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in some ways, it's, it's, you know, like Steve Jobs, he's created a reality distortion field, which is what advertising does. And he's created his own reality distortion field around his own personality and his own antics with bizarrely manned space travel. Now, if you're trying to promote driverless cars, why the hell do you, you think rockets need to have, you know, two billionaires on board possessed of no notable aeronautical experience is a bit of a mystery to me. But we'll park that obvious contradiction, okay? Anything's built for driverlessness, it's rocketry, okay, (laughs) right? So we'll park my little objection to Elon's inconsistency there. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, you know, that's not a bad ad campaign, sending rockets into space which land on their own arse. You know, Mm. it's pretty damn, you know, for for the kind of people who are interested in Teslas, it's pretty damn good advertising, isn't it? It's, it's, if you like, it's the equivalent of what you might call the halo effect from a super premium BMW. You know, you build the Mercedes S-Class not really to make money, but in a way that gains a halo effect for the rest of the brand. Maybe that's unfair of the S-Class, but it's true of, you know, some very high-end brands produce a kind of what you might call a demonstrator extreme version of whatever it is they do you know ibm producing deep blue it's exactly you know that that kind of stuff and of course you know you could say well actually you know spacex is a fantastic seven series tesla you know in terms of the you know it's the m series and so you know we've got to we've got to remember that marketing is not advertising and advertising is not paid media you know that definition of you know that definition crumbled quite a long time ago to be honest Tesla's definitely doing marketing. They're just not doing paid advertising. I mean, I would actually, if I was Samsung, I think, I would actually complain about the free press coverage given to any kind of iPhone launch. Because, you know, the amount of news segments about people queuing outside the Apple store, okay, all that sort of stuff, you know, is completely disproportionate to the importance of the phone relative to, for example, and it's partly because all journalists use use Apple devices. Okay, I mean, you know, there's an un, you know, in the journalistic community has always been very, very heavily iOS focused. 
and and also uh, is always been typically uh, Mac focused. Okay, but I, you know, I think Samsung and other people and LG and so forth could, if they were a political party, they could justifiably complain about bias. Yeah, that's actually interesting because maybe this was unintentional, but like iPhone focused on the designers, the writers, the artists, the creatives, which is like what attracted, but those are the people who are inherently writing about the phone, yes, producing content. I mean, the, me- the media is very interesting. Media and marketing world. If you if you do kind of cognitive segmentation in marketing and media, everybody is off the charts. Probably explains why they tend to lean Democrat very heavily. By the way, they're off the charts in things like openness to experience. Okay, so I mean, genuinely, the media world doesn't really understand the conservative mindset very well. Least of all, the media world in New York, which is a city which is over and LA overwhelmingly dominated by people who are open to experience, which is why they moved there for God's sake, right? And you, and, you know, and I do, I do argue that actually, you know, I, I think that advertising employees understand Audi buyers, let's say, or Tesla buyers. I think they understand those people very well. I don't think they understand the people who buy Ford F one fifty pickup trucks nearly as well as they understand the people who buy Minis, for example. You know, they're also very, very acutely driven to acts of display, of signaling. And there's a large chunk of people who don't really want to signal very much. I mean, you know, there's a large chunk of the population who kind of opt out of the signal wars. And, the, you know, marketing people, by being absolutely preoccupied with certain, you know, signaling behaviours, not only the signaling of, you know, clothes, luxury goods, etc., but the signaling of, you know, exotic travel or political opinions. My friend Rob Henderson, I don't, you, you must interview him, actually. Very, very interesting evolutionary psychologist and uh, social commentator, really. He's a Los Angelino, brought up in foster homes. Now he, went, he then went to the USAF, which kind of rescued him from a life of destitution, and then went to Yale, uh, and, then, and now is in Cambridge in the UK. And he, he writes about luxury beliefs which is that rich people hold the kind of liberal beliefs which you can afford to hold if you've got a lot of money, you know, but which you can't actually afford to adhere to if you're poor. And, you know, he, he argues that people now adopt political opinions as a way of effectively signaling their own success. It's an oblique way of signaling wealth. That's super interesting. An example of that would be, it'd be very, very common for rich people to say, I think there should be unlimited immigration or migration. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong, by the way, I'm, you know, I'm fairly pro. I'm fairly pro. Migration, I think it enriches society, okay? But I don't think anybody can make the case that you should just open the borders, right? Simply, not, not necessarily because the, the, the constituency would be undesirable, but the speed at which the change happened would be simply unsustainable, okay? And it's very common for rich people to go, no, no, you should just have completely open borders, which is a way of saying, effectively, I'm not threatened by mm-hmm. the kind of people who'd move in, okay? And so, you know, We've always got to be very, very alert to the fact that people sometimes signal things in a way that makes them feel great. But the what you might call the proximate effect drivers to look altruistic. The ultimate driver is actually a form of oblique boasting. Jeffrey Miller, who wrote a book called The Mating Mind and another book called Spent, which is similar to the work that Gard Saad does here uh, on consumerism as a form of display. Okay. He, he made a very interesting prediction, which I thought was very astute and also very prescient, which is he said that social media 
would fundamentally change what status goods are. When you're showing off to your neighbours, okay, I can't explain why, but I bought an electric car, and I'm telling everybody this, so I'm bragging a little bit, okay? But I wouldn't put a picture of my car on social media. But if I went to Machu Picchu, which is a similarly extravagant action, I put a great picture of my grinning mug in front of fucking Machu Picchu, right? <laughs> and Jeffrey Miller predicted this because he said that what you can show off on social media, opinions, views, travel for some reason, although it's environmentally, you know, you know, if I if I bought a Dodge Viper and put a picture of it on my social media field. Now, when you are showing off to your neighbours and your friends and your girlfriends and your prospective girlfriends, buying a Dodge Viper worked because you had the Dodge Viper and you didn't have to brag about it because they saw you driving, all right? It didn't involve an act of kind of conspicuous showing off. Whereas a social media post can be denigrated for precisely that reason, which is that it's a deliberate act of statusing. So as a result, weirdly, there are certain behaviours which pass muster as social status signaling in social media, uh, which would, would include ho your holiday, for example, or buying a fine piece of china or something like that. Yeah. There are certain behaviours which are just okay. And there are certain behaviours which were okay, like buying a Dodge Viper, okay, which for some reason on social media don't play. And Miller's prediction was that patterns, whole patterns of consumption would reshape themselves around the means people have to actually show off about them. I mean, it's an, it's an issue with the environmental movement, which is you can talk a bit about my electric car, okay, but it might make just as much difference if I replaced my boiler with a heat pump, okay? We can, have, we can on this channel, okay, have a 15-minute conversation about electric cars. If you, want to, if you want to have a two-hour conversation about electric cars, I've got the content there. No. Heat pumps, okay? You can't really. I mean, you know, it's a pretty nerdy world to show off your new heat. You, nobody ever pulled because they had a heat pump, right? Yeah, you know, it's you really, know. really funny. Hey, ladies. Hey, ladies, I've got a heat, I've got a heat pump. Form an orderly queue. It's never going to happen, is it, right? What's really funny is what you just said is like a lot of like, like for environmentalism, the buying, mm. like they will buy things that will signal that they're environmentalists, but if it comes down to saving money and not, and there's no chance of signaling, they'll go with the, the saving money over like the environmental choice. But the, the, yeah. the other side, the outside perspective is that they're very, the clothes they wear, the car they drive, like the outside perspective. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that distinction, and there's a great paper by Kevin Simler, which is about advertising as social imprinting, which is that advertising creates the meaning that people can then convey through their use of products. So it's necessary for advertising to be mass media because it's not enough for me to know. I need to know that everybody else knows. So the association with, of Corona as an outdoor beer needs to be common knowledge in order for it to be adequately signaled. So Kevin Simler's point about that. And Simler makes the point, he said, things that are consumed entirely privately, can you name a brand of bed linen, for example. In famous mattresses, you can. That's a slightly weird one. But, you know, okay, th there's a very big difference between things that are consumed in a social setting and things like hemorrhoid cream, which generally aren't. You know, I do know a brand of hemorrhoid cream, which is Preparation H, but that was advertised not through social imprinting. It was simply a way for people to know, you know, there was a cure for hemorrhoids. Okay, that was very simple advertising problem solution. But a very large part of display advertising in mass media, 
Now, you might argue that for Preparation H, you know, digital media are doing a great job because all you need to reach with if you do you have preparation H in the US it, it used to be a hemorrhoid cream in the U, in the in the UK anyway it's the only not. hemorrhoid cream I can think of okay but hemorrhoid cream is pretty good in digital media because you just wait for people to search for piles hemorrhoids ask grapes farmer sorry farmer Giles is um uh, cockney rhyming slang for piles in the UK um, okay but you look for those search terms you sell them preparation H job done they don't need to know that any, any of their friends know anything about Preparation H. Indeed, they prefer that they didn't, okay? But then if you take an opposite decision, which is something like clothing, which is consumed in a public setting, it's worth noting, by the way, that Apple, okay, never really got anywhere in the desktop computer market. It had a bit of success with the iMac, okay, which was, again, it was a computer you put in your living room rather than the study because it didn't look beige, okay? But with the exception of the iMac, Apple is still way, way, way number two in terms of desktop and to some extent laptops. So in the more public and visible world of the iPhone and the tablet, Apple predominates. And so it is really interesting that Apple enjoys market dominance in direct proportion to the public nature with which the product is used. Yep. I mean, they did, they were smart with um there's like that story about like Steve Jobs, like how he argued how the Apple logo was supposed to be put on the back of a, a Mac um, because it's it's public and people will see the Apple logo when they're walking you know, around. It still sort of drives me nuts that it's sort of upside down <laughs> because it's designed to be the right way up when seen by others, not when seen by the person who's opening the laptop. Exactly. And, so, and the fact that it has a light on it is, you know, is is wonderfully gratuitous, you know. And it, it is very interesting. That, and it's also interesting that the iPhone 5C, that cheap versions of iPhones don't really work because people who are cash constrained would rather have a secondhand iPhone and pretend that it's an old iPhone than they would have an iPhone that signals the fact that you never paid the full price for the, you know, the high spec model. Mm-hmm. So all attempts, I think, to try and move down market fail because you're in signaling terms, you're up against the option of having your dad's old iPhone, which is cooler. It's cooler to have your dad's iPhone 10 or whatever it is than it has is to have a brand new, you know, uh, iPhone Lite, as it were. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think Apple has gone into the instead of having the financing options and stuff like that instead of the trying to capture that like lower quality not lower quality but less expensive because financing yeah. like the ability to pay which is kind of funny because my dad used to he used to work for a bank and they used to offer like fly now like Find now, pay later. And that went away for a long time. And now it's like a whole thing. Like everybody is like financing things. Like for the bit, it wasn't like, a, it's not a new concept. It happened. Like banks were doing that like 50 years I'll ago. I'll give you an idea of an old idea that died, which is Holiday Inn was founded on the second room half price. And I still think that's the cleverest hotel offer because let's think of it like this, right? Yield management just discounts hotels when there's low demand. As a result, you're discounting to people who could afford to pay full price. If you've got two or even worse, three kids, 
right? Think of it like this, okay? A double-income couple with no kids is paying for one hotel room out of two salaries. If you've got young, if you've got kids, you're probably or quite possibly paying for two or three hotel rooms out of one salary. Therefore, discounting multiple rooms is a much more sensible way to capture the, uh, the, the deadweight loss, okay, while retaining the consumer surplus for dual-income couples. It's a much cleverer mode of discounting than just reducing the cost of rooms on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. And yet Holiday Inn Hotel Chains started by doing that. They've stopped doing it. I, th- I think they need to bring it back. I think it's the most brilliant idea, which for some weird reason just died. That is, I mean, I just know, like, even for me, like, costs, I mean, costs of hotel rooms are right now are, like, insane. So it would totally make sense for a hotel chain to do that. Like, especially with the, a lot of hotel chains have inventory just sitting there and not being used, um, which is crazy to me. They, they rather just, yes, like... No, no, I'll give you another example of this. In London, I've always suggested you have a kind of Amazon Prime arrangement where you pay a hotel chain, well, £100 a year. It wouldn't have to be that much, okay, literally, $100 a year, okay, in the US. And the deal is that after 10 p.m., if there's a room available, you can have it cheaply. And the idea for that is it's a solution to people who get pissed in London are too drunk to drive home or even go home and pick up their car from the station. Okay, they've got a meeting the next morning. Okay, it's going to cost them £80 to get a, 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 a taxi home to the suburbs. Okay, why not offer them one of your empty rooms for 55 or 60 on top of the membership fee? Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I, I think that hotels... One of the things is that, you know, yield management is a brilliant, was a brilliant thing. I mean, let's be honest, okay. Robert Crandall, I think, was the guy who pioneered it at American Airlines. He was a genius. Still alive, actually, I'm delighted to say. Really interesting guy. Um, he invented the frequent flyer program. He's, he's kind of the don of airline CEOs uh, in my particular pantheon. Um, but I think, I think we, need a, we need a new phase of yield management and revenue management now in hotels and, and airlines. I'd love to, you know, I think behaviorally we could experiment with far more intelligent things. You know, mm-hmm. if, you know, a, a great arrangement would be, let's say you're a hotel chain, you want to attract families, you have a deal, which is if you book and you stay in the hotel and the hotel wasn't full when you stayed, okay, we rebate you as a voucher 50% of the cost of the second room. Yeah, that could be fun. You know, rather than discounting things by by twenty percent, why don't you say there's a one in a five chance you'll get your flight for free? Building a bit of gambling. Yep, gamification. That's a hell of a lot more fun. It's a hell of a lot more fun than twenty percent off, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That is. You know, I think there are tons of things because the the problem with economics is it thinks that money is money. No, money is meaning, and the meaning's context dependent. Mm-hmm. And so whether something's expensive or cheap is a product of perception. It's not a product of the dollar amount it costs. And economists can't cope with this because all of their models require the axiomatic assumption that we have this objective feeling of value and that money is infinitely fungible and we're we're always conscious of the opportunity cost of a dollar spent here, could have been a dollar spent there, and that we have have stable preferences. It's such a load of bullshit. I mean, it's a bunch of assumptions made for the purposes of mathematical tractability. 
really. Let's pretend this is like physics. So in order to achieve that kind of Newtonian certainty, let's make a series of assumptions that are totally ridiculous and that no marketer will have any patience with. But the rest of business operates on those assumptions. It's tragic. What You said this earlier, but you're coming out with a new book. When is that coming out? Uh, the, so the most recent book, co-authored and actually much more authored by him than by me, let's be honest, uh, but he's a wonderful, wonderful writer and thinker, Pete Dyson, former colleague of mine who's now head of, of behavioral science at the Department for Transport in the UK. And he's one of those sort of you know, genuine genius. And the book's called Transport for Humans, Are We Nearly There Yet? by Pete Dyson and Rory Sutherland. And it's a book about the psychology of transportation and travel. And by the way, actually, um, one of the interesting things, I think, is that one of the problems you have with rail in America is that most Americans have never taken a really good rail trip. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, I think there's a Columbus's egg element to rail travel. If you produce really good parking and you gave people really good train Wi-Fi and seats and an on-table meal, I think people would be converted through use. And, you know, one of the problems is I think you had, you know, that, I mean, it, it's, it's fair to say, by the way, there are a lot of journeys in the US which aren't very well suited, a lot of city pairs that aren't very well suited to a rail connection. The East Coast, obviously, you know, has kind of a cellar connection. Uh, you know, San Francisco, I guess, the you know, the Central Valley and then um, LA, uh, maybe San Diego would be our case in point. I would argue that Austin and, to be honest, I think Austin and San Antonio would be an interesting experiment in high-speed rail. Um, uh, but in many cases in the US, you know, the distances, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would go from New York to Chicago by train, but that's because I'm a train nerd, not because it's a sensible way to do it. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, I th I, but I think, I think, you know, it's always interesting looking at the path dependency of things, that one of the reasons the US hasn't got trains is that it didn't, you know, that, that, it, that it was very early with aviation. And the very interesting thing, why do you only have, Americans only have, what is it, uh, 110 volts in your, in your domestic electricity. The rest of the world nearly all has 230. The reason is you've got electricity early. And but now, but we started with 110 volts in the UK. We decided that 240 volts was better for providing heat and powering things, washing machines, etc. It is a bit dangerous. I accept that objection. Now, we could make the switch over to 240 volts because at the time we made the switch over, not many people owned things that were 110 volt appliances. So you could just make the switch. By the time the US decided to make the switch, there were too many, there was too much of an installed base of 110 volt appliances for people to actually then switch out. And so in all technological uh, innovation, you get these extraordinary kind of uh, dependency paths. Um, and, you know, that um, I, I always think are really interesting. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes I, I'm not sure. There, there's a school of thought that says that we nearly had electric cars from the get-go, that Henry Ford and Edison between them made an electric car. And there's a possible explanation. Now, OK, there are two schools of thought. We could never have improved batteries sufficiently until the 21st century to make an electric car as good as a gasoline car. On the other hand, if we'd invested in battery technology rather than gasoline technology, who knows what progress would have been made? Okay, we don't have the counterfactual. Mm -hmm. 
And the interesting thing, which is a possible, I, I don't give it huge credence, but I think it's a conceivable theory, that what did for electric cars in 1905, 1910, is they were so quiet and civilised that they were disproportionately popular with women and that women didn't have much consumer power back then, and it effectively feminized the, the, the product. And so, you know, people thought electric cars, lovely for the ladies, as they would have said in 1905, don't, don't, don't cancel me, okay, <laughs> right? You know, lovely, lovely thing for the ladies, you know, so, so quiet, there's no pollution, there's no noise, and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, you know, interfere with their fragile, <laughs> you know, their fragile state of mind. He said, quoting an imaginary person, okay, right? But, 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 you know, the really blokish thing is to have a gasoline engine car or even a steam car because it's kind of noisier and chunkier and racier. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's conceivable that it was a marketing problem that killed the electric car in its early stages, not not actually a, 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 an energy delivery problem. That's super interesting. That's crazy. Um, I want to leave the next few minutes. Uh, I want to ask you a question about what what are some new thinking thinkings you've had and since COVID that you didn't think about before? Like what 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 are some new new things that you like discovered one one humble brag smug thing is i was right about video conferencing i was convinced that it offered an extraordinary potential to generally enjoy productivity and quality of life gains um uh in white in, in large areas of the knowledge economy and if only it could reach a tipping point of ad- of adoption so I, I feel vindicated by that in that nobody I was I was the local weirdo at Ogilvy going around instigating Zoom Fridays in my team. So I actually said, look, OK, let's all do this on Friday and see how it works. OK. And I was at least experimenting with the technology, whereas most people were dismissing. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel vindicated through that. Um, I think that there is an element where it's possible, okay. Now I'm gonna, okay. Here, here's the interesting thing. I'm a, I, I'm a massive. Don't take this as a criticism, okay. I'm an absolutely massive Americanophile, even more so as a Brit. I absolutely love Los Angeles. For some reason, Brits love LA because it's completely unlike a European city. You see, if you're a Brit, you go to San Francisco and you go to New York. You go, yeah, it's kind of great, but it's kind of a European city. You go to LA and you go. What the hell is this? Okay, this is kind of nuts. Okay, right? Um, okay, but there are a few weird American blind spots. Okay, the incarceration rate is one of them. Okay, uh, you know, you don't need to send people to jail for a first nonviolent offense. Okay, you really shouldn't do that. Okay, every other country in the world gets away with not doing it, including countries which have, you know, pretty violent populations, you know, et cetera. Like, you know, South Africa has a much lower incarceration rate than you do, okay? Um, now, the, the, uh, another one is, okay, guns, I accept it. Okay, that's just a path dependency thing. When loads of people own guns, I bet if I'd own guns, I'd really love guns. I think guns are quite cool. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, right? Okay, I don't own a gun. I don't want a gun, okay? But if I did own a gun, I'd probably want to keep the gun. All right, so maybe maybe that's unsolvable. Okay, I, I, I don't I don't get obsessed about that necessarily. Um, uh, but the third one is the number of vac- the vacation and leisure time, 
And I, I think that what, what's particularly happened in the US is a, there's a thing called the Great Resignation. Okay, let, let me put it this way, okay? There's a, one thing that you suffer from in the US is that you export your media wonderfully successfully, okay? So if there's any time that the Americans come up with a good idea, and most ideas, actually, okay, I'll give you the credit for this, I think a hell of a lot of good ideas come from the United States, Okay. But every time there's a good idea in the United States, we in Europe and everybody elsewhere in the world gets to watch your films. We see them. We go, that's a good idea. Let's do a bit of that. Okay. But it doesn't happen in reverse. And there are things you can do in Europe, which Americans regard as anathema, like drinking alcohol outside, (laughs) which is a highly sophisticated thing to do in France, but in America basically makes you a vagrant. Drying your clothes out of doors in Phoenix would seem reasonably sensible. You know, I'm not sure if we had constant 100 degree temperatures that we'd put things in a tumble dryer in the UK, okay, in a a dryer. And a third one would be the amount of paid vacation time you get. I mean, I can't do it, unfortunately. I I did have a cousin, my cousin, just cousin Woodrow was president of the United States, but I'm not eligible because I wasn't born in in, in America. Um, But if I, if I stood, uh, Bernie Sanders is the only person who's actually made this point, that actually I don't know anybody in Britain, okay, who is, you know, even people on the extreme libertarian kind of or hardcore economic right who believe that Britain should have less paid holiday. We get four, five, six weeks. The Germans get six, seven. The French get, I mean, God knows. I mean, they have public holiday, you know, at the drop of a hat, right? And okay, there's a small price to pay in some forms of productivity, although there may not be. In fact, people may actually work better if they're better rested. People may get more exposure to different ideas. You know, people may have you know, better appreciation. Because the other strange thing with the US okay, is it's totally okay to retire. Exiting the workforce completely is a completely respectable thing to do, okay, even if you do it at 55. Whereas taking four weeks vacation makes you the lazy guy. Now, I'm saying that the US is taking the gains from wealth, okay, and converting them to leisure purely at the end of life in the shape of retirement and at the beginning of life in the shape of higher education, but the middle of life is ridiculously light on leisure and autonomy. And the one thing I'd love, you know, the one thing I'd love to do, I I, I let you keep the guns. I get that, you know, Um, you know, it's just a path dependency thing, you know. It's like taking away a car from someone who's owned a car, okay? Um, the incarceration rate, test it somewhere, please. You know, because I mean, it isn't necessary to have this level of incarceration for you know minor drugs offences. It really, it, it's it's such a bad idea because, as, as you know, a, you know, prison is to some extent you know a university for crime. Okay, you know, it, you come out of it disproportionately well qualified to engage in further criminal activity and often disqualified from further honest activity. And I, you know, it, it it really can't be that good an idea, I have to say. I had this argument with Daniel Kahneman about his book, Noise, because I said, yes, you've spotted noise in the criminal justice system in the United States. But I mean, both the sentences were, you know, that one person, I think, for a very similar first offence was in prison for 10 years and the other person got two. And I said, but in Britain, no one would have a, a, a custodial sentence for doing that. A first time offence of check fraud you know, you'd have some sort of shit happen to you, but you wouldn't go to jail, okay? And I think that, you know, that benefit of the doubt thing, you know, with first offences could be huge. But I think also the leisure thing, 
Now, okay, all I'm saying is we've nicked tons of ideas from you, right? And the majority of good ideas have come out of actually have come out of the Midwest, out of you know, maybe infusion of Silicon Valley and so on. But your ability to nick ideas from anywhere else needs to be improved. So uh, nowhere did anybody suggest about the American healthcare debate. Well, let's go and see what the Canadians do, because they, you know, they they all seem to be living fairly hard. Canadians don't seem to be dying on the streets. You know, maybe just by accident, the Canadians have got this a bit right, you know. It's sort of private in the provision, but the government plays a slightly more active part in the funding. Da, 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 da. Maybe, maybe the Canadians have got it right. But nobody could say that. I mean, it would have been anathema. You don't have to invent everything yourself. Brits, okay, basically go around the world licking stuff. <laughs> but to give us our credit, <laughs> we nicked a load of ideas. It's very, very syncretic culture, you know, so, you know, you go to India, we, you know, we nick the loaded stuff. We also nick the food, you know. And actually, um, the, the U.S., because it's such a great exporter of media, I think, uh, and doesn't import many other media. I mean, I, you know, I don't imagine. You know, but, it's, but trust me, OK, it's perfectly possible to sit outside a restaurant consuming a bottle of wine on a summer evening without actually reducing yourself to vagrancy or having to drink it out of a brown paper bag. Trust me, OK, you just have to take my word for this. And so what interests me is blind spots. So what really, really interests me in psychology is things that actually we sort of know but don't want to see or can't see. That's, that's the area that really fascinates me, I think. The air fryer. Okay, once you've got one, no, no turning back. You know, I got one for my dad. He was 80. Okay, a bit cynical when this bloody great box arrived. He's now like an air fryer evangelist. I mean, he'd subscribe to Air Fryer magazine, if the, it, which does exist in the US, by the way. Yeah, There's now actually a magazine called Air Fryer magazine. Yeah, I mean that's, I mean that's crazy. I think what you but, said. But has that. the US has the US had a bit of an epiphany on work-life balance? I hope so. Um, I think yes, but I think even. I think their idea is like, okay, you can work remote and stuff like that. But I think with technology now, it's it's kind of made work-life balance like you're always on mentality. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, so, we've, got, we've got to work out how to kill this because th th this technology has disproportionately been put to use in the shareholder interest. And 20% of it, 30% of the benefits of technology – I'm sounding like a Marxist here. Trust me, I'm, by, by, by European standards, I'm right of centre, OK? Um, but some of the benefits of technology need to accrue to labour, not to capital, mm -hmm. as Carl would have said. Yeah, you know, I mean, Henry, Henry Ford, you know, he created the two-day weekend. And not quite true. I mean, it's oversimplification. But Ford, in his writings, said that we believe that we need to create enough leisure for Americans to have time to consume. If you have a two-day weekend, it's worth buying a car. I think the American economy would benefit overall if people had more leisure time, because people would spend money on experiences rather than goods, and experiences tend to be a bit more labor-intensive, and the, and the value tends to be created locally. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I'm definitely a proponent. I think, I think what's happening is that you talked about the, like, I think companies are moving slower on this but people are moving faster that's why like the great resignation is happening yeah. because people are realizing like 
why am I wasting my time doing these things? Like, why am I constrained, having these constraints put on me? I, I enjoy my freedom. I think for the first time, like workers are now realizing like what freedom's like by working from home, like which they didn't have. No, and also, also, I think complete retirement. I, I actually Googled once looking for, because there are huge arguments against having four weeks vacation during a working life. And I Googled to see if there's anybody who had an anti-retirement argument, just out of interest. And I only came across one group, which was fundament- a group of fundamentalist Christians on the discussion board who believed that the idea of retirement was unbiblical. Now, obviously, if you were ill or mentally incapacitated, it was acceptable no longer to work. But they believed that the idea of stopping work was somehow unbiblical. I, 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 now, the only point I'd make about that is I don't think retirement dead up going from 50 hours a week to zero. Whether or not it's biblical, I don't think it's good for you. I think you should taper off. You know, And a lot of people, I think, retire because, not because they want to stop work, but because they want to stop commuting. And previously, we never detached those two things. We never said, do I want to stop work or do I want to stop commuting? Because we saw commuting and work as inextricable, okay, as inseparable. And what this has forced us to do is literally it's a collective reframing of a problem. And it, it collectively, we're now asking a different question. And as a result, we're getting a different and probably better answer. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I think the the concept of working whenever you want remotely, all this new concepts that came out of COVID is actually the better way because you can you can enjoy life and get your work done when like time permits to to get your work done, which like really the metric of success of the work is like, are you doing your work or not? Not like, are yeah, you yeah. are you are you work there nine to five? Like that 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 by the way, that proxy, the proxy for productivity being self-flagellation, okay, which I see a lot of presenteeism, etc. There's a little bit of me which likes my employees to be a little bit lazy sometimes, because it's the lazy guy who actually works out the easy way to do something. You know, I suspect that a disproportionate number of productivity gains actually come a pioneered by lazy people. There used to be apparently in the German army a four. This is in the time of kind of the 19th century or something. Uh, the I think it was the Prussian army graded officers, which was energetic and intelligent, lazy and intelligent, uh, lazy and stupid, and lazy and energetic. And it wasn't a simple four-way quadrant because they said the lazy and intelligent person had a value. The worst person was the energetic, stupid person who would basically invest a huge amount of energy on things that didn't need doing or which were totally counterproductive. Okay, And they also said that the the lazy, intelligent person had a certain strategic value. You know, they they would make a, a very good particular kind of officer or a particularly good strategist. Okay, and there was also a role for the intelligent, energetic person, but it's not a totally crazy way to segment the populace or the workforce. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, lazy people. I just know, like, even me. Sometimes I, I tend to get lazy, but it just helps me figure out the the easy way to do things. Um, So, I yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I can't. You can't be. I don't know. 
some people are lazy, maybe not in their work life, but they, they, every human has a sense of laziness. Like I, I haven't met a human that doesn't have a, a little part of lazy, whether it's like they're lazy in how they, they don't work out or they're lazy and like they don't do something part of their life. Maybe it's not their work life that's lazy, but something in their life is lazy. Um, um, no, and I think, I think there is a, there is a, I mean, the French, interestingly, uh, take massive amounts of vacation. But what is extraordinary is they're very, very productive when they're at work. It may not fit with a stereotype, but they take an enormous amount of vacation. They retire incredibly young, actually. Ridiculous. I mean, ridiculously young. Okay, so the state retirement age for a train driver in France is 50. Okay, so I would have been retired for seven years if I were a French train driver, basically on probably something like 80% of my prior salary. Now, by the way, the origins for that are not ridiculous. You know, if you're on the hot plate of a steam locomotive going through the media temperatures of 100 degrees, you, you didn't want to be doing that when you're 55, particularly when you're going to be dead at 60. OK, mm. but the fact that they stick to that kind of acquis, they call it an acquired worker right, and they'll never surrender an acquired worker right is a problem for the French economy. But while the French are actually working, they get on with shit to a, a, an impressive degree. Yeah, like, I mean, that's like the argument about, like, no human can actually, like, work eight hours being productively. That's why you should have, like, five. So, so there's a law of diminishing returns, and then it actually becomes counterproductive. After a time, you actually enter negative territory, where you're actually making yourself worse at your job by working more. And the other thing is, I think that, I mean, I'm always conscious of the fact that I'm now in a position where I write more than I read. Well, not quite, but it really makes me uncomfortable because, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, dedicating a, you know, a week to effectively restocking your mental pantry every now and then is a really, really worthwhile thing to do. I mean, that's why um, you see these like writers that go to like the quiet places, like yeah. the woods and do it because they need that like mental clarity, which you can't get from being always on, um, which is- uh, one, one, one other thing to answer your, your earlier question, by the way, I think we might've reevaluated our relationship with nature a little bit during lockdown. And we might've come to realize that communing with the natural world has a value which by, ne- by its very nature, you can't put a cash value on, but it does have a value in terms of our well-being and general um, emotional state. I mean, that's an interesting part too. I think like for me, like being at home got me like out walking and hiking more than yeah. I did ever when I was. There's even a trend called forest bathing where you go and basically I think you wear a bathing costume or something. I'm not sure if you go completely naked, but you go and lie in the forest effectively. And it's like sunbathing, only you bathe in a forest rather than the sun. Now, I don't do that because people walking through British forests don't want to come across a half-naked 57-year-old advertising executive. But uh, it strikes me that that probably works. Nassim Taleb was very good on this. Uh, He spotted the fact that we somehow prefer fractal environments to regimented environments. Well, I think that you can kind of see a little bit that what happened when remote happened, where a lot of city people started moving to yeah. like like naturey places or like outside the city where there's open land and nature and stuff like that. I know a lot of people who moved to like 
very like nature. Well, ad agency, as an ad agency, we made a fortune running ads back in the 1990s for laptops, showing people effectively looking at a spreadsheet next to a leg, because that was the fantasy that laptops were sold on. In the event, it was someone sitting in a cubicle with a slightly inadequate keyboard staring at a laptop at 11 o'clock at night. Okay, that was the reality as distinct from the fantasy. But the advertising did tell us that there was something in humanity that we deep down wanted. Okay, and one of the questions I, I always ask is that futurism is always conflated with urbanism. And I'm not sure, particularly in a country like the US, where you've got quite a bit of space. Okay. I'm not sure that's not just an assumption. I'm not sure there's a. We know, you know, that people generally are happier in, you know, low-rise housing with in proximity to nature rather than in, you know, uh, in high-density housing at, at high high altitude. That you know, there's evidence of this. So why the future is always assumed to be a megacity is an interesting question. It may be because all futurologists have to live in megacities for their work. And they've post-rationalized a, a, a necessity as a preference. Yeah, also I think someone made an argument to me, like that. I mean, there is an argument to it. Like when you're in a city, it, the amount of people that you interact with, that at the intelligence level, whatever, whatever, expands like your ideas and makes you think more. Like when you're in like. I don't know. You don't. I mean, I, I, I think I think it's I think it's both extremes. Actually, yeah. I think the best mental state is to expose yourself to both extremes and to avoid the middle. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think you need. I think you need the, yeah. the time to go in nature and shut off. But you also need it. I feel like that sometimes you do need to be around a lot of people, smart people, because Zoom only could do so much. You you kind of have Zoom, to schedule. Zoom could do- it's worth remembering that we wouldn't be having this conversation at all were it not for Zoom. Mm-hmm. So we, we mustn't forget that the opportunity cost of presuming co-location for meaningful discussion is quite high. No, I think I think and we we, we, would, we would be having this conversation, but it would probably take place in Los Angeles or London in 2023 when we could finally find the you know the the time to meet. Exactly, I think that I think that's what Zoom did. That's why I think being in a city is not necessarily the most thing but i think having the ability to be get to a city and spend some time there is is a like a necessity i don't think you have to live in it but the ability to be close to a, a major city to do that that's why i don't mind like people living an hour and a half outside of like los angeles but they have the ability to come to los angeles and meet people if they yeah. want to um, that's where high-speed rail actually commuter rail could be useful there Actually. I think also, I also think high speed, you going back to the high speed rail talk, because I'm from San Diego, I grew up there, like, it's a very driving city. So like my argument every single time I want to take a train or not is like, can I get a round in San Diego or not? I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is exactly where you have now, commuter rail is interesting, because of course, you can work on your commute. That's mm-hmm. the distinction between a car and a train. And so the part of flexible working might be you come into Los Angeles at 11 o'clock and you work while you're on the train. Because if you can work while you're on the train, the time at which you commute is to some extent immaterial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the train just needs to be – Los Angeles is a weird city, like you said, because 
it's very like pockety. So the train needs by, to get. By the way, the... by the way, I also think because it's a car city, it has a fantastic food culture. Mm-hmm. Because New York people go where's where's convenient, whereas in Los Angeles people drive where the food's good. I've never. I was utterly in awe of the Los Angeles food scene. Mm-hmm. And it's partly driven by the, you know, by the car, because you can set up. I remember discovering this Japanese restaurant just off um, Ventura. And it was kind of like next to a Kinko's and a, you know, a nail bar. And it was in a strip mall. I was kind of going, oh, that, that place doesn't look very prepossessing. And I got on TripAdvisor. It's like the eighth best restaurant in L.A. How's that doing there? This can't make sense. And, of course, you can open something great anywhere. You know, in other words, it's one great thing about being a car city is that you're less, uh, that fewer of your gains get appropriated by the landowner. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, Georgist advantages to having a car culture. Whereas, you know, if you have a train culture, then real estate next to the station is hugely expensive and real estate, you know, you don't have that same ability to kind of experiment. That's interesting. I actually read something about how like five guys, when they started, they built it not in a very like, like when someone walks by it, they can't see it. So they, they relied on they so they can test that word of mouth of like the restaurant. Cause it was like hidden. So like people who came, oh. they, it was hidden. So they That's know that really, really interesting. So they wanted to, Thank you for that. That's incredibly valuable. So they put it in an obscure place so you could effectively distinguish between passing traffic and word-of-mouth traffic. Exactly. So they knew that people who were coming to Five Guys were people who didn't know that it was walking traffic. It was someone told them about it. Really, really, really interesting. That is the most interesting. That is fascinating and ingenious. That yeah, is that's, astounding. That's what they like. How they and that's how they distinguish like word of mouth with like that restaurant because they basically hid it in their location where you don't have foot traffic. So I just read that. I thought that was interesting because that's. I mean, and I think it started in New York. So I think they did it in like a highly foot traffic city where they knew that like someone would get there. And LA, like, it is pretty restaurants are discoverable a lot by like word of mouth because you, like you said, because of car culture and stuff like that, but in a walking city where like you hide a restaurant, it's going to highly word of mouth that you you found out about. And this is back when social media wasn't even a thing. So like people found out about by talking about it. So really, really, really interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating. I have to dash, unfortunately, because yeah. it's uh, it's it's twenty to seven here. Yeah, and I have to I, uh, tragically, I have to go on to a next call and reply to an email. But this has been a really great. Thank you very much indeed for this. Yeah, thank you, thank you for joining, and I I can't wait to pick up your new book. I I haven't. I didn't even know you were you were writing one, so that's so interesting. Well, at me on Twitter the the, the link to the podcast when it goes out because I'd be really delighted to tweet this as well. Cool. Thank you so much for joining and um, enjoy your rest of your, your night because it's night out there. Talk to you later. Uh, it's a huge pleasure. Absolute joy. And uh, it, it, uh, how are things in LA in terms of COVID restrictions? Are they fairly minor now? Was it? Uh, still like mask stuff and st- stuff like they're starting to become a little bit like New York with vaccine requirements and stuff like ah, that. Interesting. Uh, but it's funny because if you go 
10, like 25 miles south to like Orange County, you wouldn't know that it existed because that's the type of city like Orange County and San Diego are both like that. Like they're very, they're, they're very, I mean, obviously it's a difference between like democratic and Republican, yeah. like in the U S like that's how it goes. But it's funny. Cause like LA is very restrictive, but if you go really 25 miles South, it's not restrictive at all. Really interesting. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, stay safe, stay vaccinated. <laughs> and, um, uh, really beneficial. I'd be really, really happy to do a return conversation anytime you like as well. Cause I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, thank you. We'll definitely do a round, a round three now. Uh, we'll do a round two. Three, yeah. yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely right. Thanks so much. Bye.